was true. I was in his house. His wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar. His daughter filed her nails. His son went out for the night. There were daily papers, pet dogs, a pistol on the cushion beside him. The moon swung bare on its black cord over the house. On the television was a cop show. It was in English. Broken bottles were embedded in the walls around the house to scoop the kneecaps from a man's legs or cut his hands to lace. On the windows, there were gratings like those in liquor stores. We had dinner, a rack of lamb, good wine. A gold bell was on the table for calling the maid. The maid brought green mangoes, salt, a type of bread. I asked how I enjoyed the country. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. His wife took everything away. There was some talk then of how difficult it had become to govern. The parrot said hello on the terrace. The colonel told it to shut up. He pushed himself from the table. My friend said to me with his eyes, say nothing. The colonel returned with a sack used to bring the groceries home. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried peach halves. There was no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. It came alive there. I'm tired of fooling around, he said. As for the rights of anyone, tell your people they can go fuck themselves. He swept the ears of the floor with his arm and held up the last of his wine in the air. Something for your poetry, no? He said. Some of the ears on the floor caught the scrap of his voice. Some of the ears on the floor were pressed to the ground. That was The Colonel by Carolyn Porsche, written in 1978. Well then, I mean, let's just start off by discussing that. That pretty intense, I, I would say. Yeah. Pretty vivid imagery. Um, Ashley, why don't you start us off by talking about what you immediately feel when reading this and what you think the author is really trying to get across with this poem? Immediately, it's, it's surreal. No one really, there's elements of fiction and there's elements of nonfiction. There's elements that seem real. There's elements that seem not real. The narrator seems more relatable to the audience. Um, the narrator seems like she would be on our side. So we immediately um, put ourselves in her position um, in the colonel's house. What really struck me is that this poem is not written in poetry. It's written in prose. It, it looks like a chapter book across the page, and it creates this stream of consciousness that really keeps the reader um, moving inside the poem, which I thought was incredibly interesting. I might ask, what then makes it a poem? If it can be written without the classic stanzas or lines in that form. Well, it, well, oh, so I was just going to throw in the whole Dead Poet Society thing where everything is poetry. Wait, care to elaborate? Uh, everything is poetry. Every piece of work ever written is poetry. It all depends on, I believe poetry is all about interpretation. So everything says poetry just confined by its own punctuation is almost poetry. Right. I mean, but that's why you can have a piece of prose as poetry, right? Like, we say it's poetry. It appears in a book that says, these are poems, people. Well, it, you kind of look at what we consider art. It, more generally speaking, nobody can really define what art is because 
a banana taped to a wall in some European museum, some people consider that art, others consider it not art. So if we talk about what poetry is, it's really not important to this poem because it's still an expression of what the author is thinking. I think the style matters less than the actual meaning of the poem, which is one that's post-colonial, also one that's proverbial of modern society. Um, it's almost Orwellian, I would say, definitely Orwellian. And it's interesting, when I read this poem, I was unsure if like these were actual events from Carolyn Forshays' life. And turns out that she was a poet uh, who went to Honduras during oh. yeah, yeah during um, one of their um, civil wars in 1978. It was when she wrote this. She um, was a journalist there. I forget how she came in contact with this person, this colonel, but this actually happened. She was in this colonel's house. They had these things for dinner. He brought out the um, ears, uh, shook them in front of her face, put them in the water. And after this event happened, she said it felt so surreal and she felt so afraid for her life, yet connected to the people of the past who these ears belonged to that she couldn't not document it in a poem. Have you ever read uh, Shooting the Elephant I'm by not. George Orwell? So, same idea, and that's the first thing. Like, originally I thought you were actually talking about painting, um, which is another interesting point, is that the actual place described by this is never mentioned. So, it's kind of unilateral for everybody. Um, yeah, it's... But I would... Re I'm still processing... I guess the first thing that comes to mind is, why a poem? Why not a short story? Why not an article or a newspaper? Why not a journal? Because it's, in response to that, I think it's more used to convey ideas than to build a storyline and whatnot. It, there is no plot development for Carolyn Forshays. And in that, um, she wrote this feverishly after it happened to her. It, it was off the cuff, she just needed to document this, cement it into her mind so that it wasn't lost. It wasn't lost to the changes that one would make in memory. And her agenda here wasn't to expose anybody in this poem. Her agenda was to document for yes. this for herself. And, and I, think, yeah. I think that very much explains the structure then, and that it could also be compared to like a journal entry and it's just stream of consciousness, you know, no time for stanzas or organization. It's just describing what just happened. And so I think uh, it could still very much be a poem um, in this flowing manner. And, and I think that's what's beautiful about it, though, is that we are, because I was telling Noah earlier, and I think I said so in our little teaser trailer, that like books are time capsules for like human emotion and thought and something that we can't. We, you know, we can't convey emotion because we, we can only grasp at straws through empathy of what something might feel like. But stream of consciousness writing, I think, is the closest way we can get to that because we have subtle rhetorical devices that we use sorry, um, that we use when we're writing because we what we feel gets trapped in that ink and then the reader feels it. We felt it just now. This might be a tangent, but I'd like to pose the question, how does a conversation with someone 
compared to reading their writing? Is I, it more intimate? It is I think writing is the most intimate. I would But writing is also purposeful. Writing is purposeful and when you write, those words are then cemented for next the next person to read. When you say things, they evaporate into the air. They're not they they are able to be taken back because it's a spur of the moment thought that you have that you articulated into words. When you're writing, it's more purposeful. Okay, yeah, I think though with uh, conversation though, you also kind of heard your tongue going, and writing gives um, an excuse to go off at something. In this case, whether uh, Dylan Ross realizes this or not, um, the symbolism and the apparent softness of Honduras. Back to the poem. Um, it there was. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Back to the poem, she says. Okay, Ashley whatever. Ashley Hawkins in her AP Lit classroom does not appreciate the tangents no, no, that no, no, we no, no, go no. off of from the book. What they can't see from the the microphone is that I have my highlighter out and I am <laughs> highlighting what I'd like to talk about next. So, um, in this poem, there's a very stark mix of antiquated things and very modern things. So it says there were daily papers. Uh, on the television, there was a cop show. There was a brief commercial in Spanish. Those are things that all belong to our century in which we live. Yeah. But then when we say his wife carried a tray of coffee and sugar, um, we talk about a dinner of rack of lamb, good wine, um, a bell calling the maid. Those things aren't able to be pinpointed to a time necessarily, but they seem very antiquated, very minimal. And um, having this, I wonder what's the, what's the effect of having such a stark contrast of um, the ambiance in the story. Do you think that, so I guess my question to you, because you seem to have the most knowledge of the background of this piece, is was that intentionally symbolic or did was there actually like a tray of, tea and sugar she uh, from what i have read she says that this is exactly how it happened well this is how she cemented i it. feel like there is symbolism well though, of course whether, there's, there's yeah. going to be importance in including it in this little piece yeah. i mean i understand that she's going quickly but to, to go back to the purpose of journalism and whether it's intimate or not i think that there is such thing as writing for intimacy and yeah. intimacy being the purpose. Well, and she wrote it like it's intimacy. Here's yes. my little secret. Here's yes, exactly. Like here are my like when I share writing with somebody, it's a very intimate like, experience. Exactly, You're revealing exactly. yourself. It's yeah. very much so. Um I think the effect of including something uh is kind of stretching the reader. In the same way she was stretched by uh such juxtaposition. Uh, even between like old stuff, new stuff, and in between um, that kind of surreal, like oh, bag of ears, and just you know commercials, surreal, real. Um, she was being kind of pulled in different directions, and I think the same thing happened to the reader, and that's why it, it sparked such uh, response. Snaps, so, snaps for that. Is that snaps for juxtaposition. Snaps, snaps for juxtaposition. Hey. You really found a way to weevil that one in there, didn't you? I always will. Does that <laughs> raise the point? Though that um, what's interesting is she intentionally trying to cause the reader a moral dilemma. Like, is this intentionally 
not a moral dilemma, but a I don't say like a moral you don't cause. Think moral dilemma? Well, I mean, there's no dichotomy that's presented here. Yeah, there's but the, the dichotomy is the fact that he's li- thriving off of an aristocratic side, which he's exploiting in a sense through the symbolism of his ears. But we have to talk about who who do the ears belong to? It's incredibly ambiguous. There is nuance to who these ears belong I to. We can, but we can speculate. We can speculate that. Sorry, we can speculate that these um. These ears belong to people who might have wronged him. People such as Switchblade. <laughs> oh, um, like Mrs. Dalloway to Switchblade. Okay, um, we can speculate that these are people who might have wronged him, such as um, usurpers, um, people in the population that don't agree with his rule, uh, people who were killed uh, just to send a message we can only speculate who these ears belong to but the speculation adds all the more um what word am i looking for it adds um, uh depth, depth. Well, yeah, yeah. Depth, but yeah. but also the <laughs> the camp the, these conversations that's what it adds to it adds these conversations to it not being clear it's cut. intentionally ambiguous which is Mr. why Wanda it's poetry like. i wonder if it was ambiguous for her at the time it seems so yeah it seems that it was ambiguous for her at the time that's yeah but but again i don't think it's i think it takes a minute to really process what you read um but i don't think that it presents a moral dichotomy of oh i don't know what to think i mean i think like you know what to yeah. yes we don't know what to think Sorry, you don't know what to think between two things that equally pull you in either positive or we negative can all, directions. We can all agree that this is a terrible situation. There's nobody. There's no one reader that would um, yeah, willingly I, put yeah, themselves yeah, in that I'm situation. Yeah, I'm not thrilled about having you know, dead ears in my face. Are they human ears? Do we know? Um, yes. Ooh. Let me let me bring this back. Human ears on the table. Ah, he spilled okay. many human ears on the table. That. Yeah, perfect. Okay. I mean, I mean that's kind of gross. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, but. <laughs> The imagery with that though is very raw and very animalistic. It paints, yes. thus it paints the colonel as a very raw and animalistic person who doesn't have these moral constraints that other people would have. But why didn't why didn't the author then say something like go into more description about the ears? They were shriveled. Yeah. They were an off How color were they of described? white. What they were the bloody metaphor? and red. Why are they intentionally? It stuck out to me. What was it? Okay, here's the metaphor. He spilled many human ears on the table. They were like dried tea tabs. There was no other way to say this. He took one of them in his hands, shook it in our faces, dropped it into a water glass. I think what's interesting is the author interspersing there. Sorry. There was no other way to say this. She's not addressing Colonel. She's addressing us, the reader. I'm sorry I'm bringing you to this point, but there's no other way to describe these ears. It's so in the moment you would have to feel it, and also, yeah, it's raw and disgusting. I mean, yeah, I mean, two chads. That simile, Ashley, does seem pretty vivid. <laughs> AP lit terms right there. Okay. Yeah, I can't relate. Still, still AP Lang is clearly oh, the superior class. <laughs> oh my god. The Mrs. Did you get the Mrs. Dalloway? Yes. Yeah, I okay. can't relate, honestly, but we beloved have been talking. Get up, get up with Morrison. Oh, oh wait, no, okay. they're reading Stula, We're though. reading Stula, We're Stula right now. Well, we have they read Vonnegut? Have they read Vonnegut? I, I like yes. it. I like it. I think it, I think it adds 
I'm the only one here who's experienced both classes. Well, yeah, that is. You're true. also Ashley Coffins. Yeah, mm. and you're 17 as well. So. Well, look at me. <laughs> She's 16. She's 16. I know, 16. but she'll be 17 by the time we get to college. She's like she's she's like me but older, yeah. intellectually. We're, we're all like each other. The human race is inseparable. Boom! Back to the pump. <laughs> back to the pump. <laughs> That's the beauty of AP Lang. We don't and have to go back to the pump. Well, poem. hold up, but we're going back to the pump. Why are we similar to each other in the same way that ears are? Onion. Look, there's when when we're analyzing poetry, the first like we're taught. I think it's funny we we're taught how to feel, um, but that's a conversation yeah. for another day. Um, I think. Oh, wait, 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 Paul, wait, oh. Paul. I, I, I got. I got <laughs> he is some, about to go on got, on a very intelligent. I, yes, I'm good. I got the conch shell. Okay. <laughs> wait. So, you oh. <laughs> hopefully appreciate that. All right. I also have asthma. Who Just kidding. I have no idea. Oh, 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 who wrote Lord of the Flies? Lord of the Flies. <gasps> wait, wait, I'm going to oh, forget. Someone wrote it. Keep talking. I'm okay. looking this up. Okay, we're, we're yeah, going to Google up. the author yeah. of Lord of the Flies. Just to wait. But in the meantime, we are taught the triangle of poetry, right? Like we did it today in Lane, The rhetorical right? triangle. The rhetorical triangle. The author, what is it? The, sorry, the speaker. Audience. The audience and a topic or something like that, right? Uh, subject, yeah. Subject, so, the subject, audience. right? So when we're analyzing it strictly through that rhetorical triangle, if you will, William uh, Golding, pathos, ethos. No, no, those are always going to be an aha moment for me. Those are AP Lang squares. Yeah, it it wasn't. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it was. We also read. I I read it in. I read it like eighth grade, ninth grade. That was the ninth grade assignment. Ninth grade assignment. Yeah. That's what you get when you live in Kenosha. I love you. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. Probably can't hear you right now. Okay, so, okay. All bragging anyway, all anyway, so when we're looking at it from this rhetorical triangle, right, it's not very clear what the purpose of this poem is aside from, uh, aside from just internal documentation. So my question to you is that, is this, this book right here. Yes. There was a human being who went through and said, what poems should I put in this book? And Can you read the book's title? The book's title is called A Pocket Full of Poems, Vintage Verse, Volume 1. So it is, in summary, a collection of what this person has deemed the most important poems throughout history. Exactly. So the question we have to ask and answer is this. Is this, a, is this included for what it makes us feel? Or is this included because of what it is, being a... Influences there with your varsity medals. Okay, uh, restate that statement, possibly. Um, Is it restate that? Yeah. Uh, basically, when is a, why is it a why is it included? Why is it included for what it makes us feel, or is it included because of what it is? So we're asking what makes a classic a classic. Effectively. Okay, this is a completely different argument. Do we want to get into this? Make it brief. We'll wrap okay. it up soon. Okay, so what makes a classic a classic? A classic, what makes a classic a classic? Well, first, the classic has to do something that has never been done before. Um, secondly, it has to have some sort of... Yeah, cult. but all classics derive off of human condition. 
Well, I'm talking liter- literary oh, value. Okay. So if you yeah, look yeah, at under, you, if, human condition, me not. We're gonna go on John Bellion. John Bellion. Well, if you look at all the classics, if you look at all the classics in books like Mrs. Dalloway, I can't even talk. Uh, okay, if you look at all the classics throughout history in terms of books, Miss, Mrs. Dalloway, you have Mrs. Dalloway. <laughs> oh my God. Who who first tried who Ashley's the stream, obsessed with who first tried the stream of consciousness? Yes. Um, we have Hamlet, who was the first uh, round character that has ever been really written. Even older, you have like the Odyssey and the, the Iliad, yeah. which are your first epic poems actually recorded. So basically, down. classics are their first. I take that back. Epic of Gilgamesh. Please don't remind me, but whatever. You know what it says while slamming his hands onto the table where he knows the conference I don't want it to end up in the group chat where people keep texting me, yeah, that's wrong. No, no, <laughs> Epic of Gilgamesh, but. So so something that hasn't been done before. Something that hasn't been done before. Secondly. Well, oh, okay, keep going. Oh. I was I was going to have a really smooth transition at the end of the podcast, but it's okay. Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Um. Secondly, a poem ha- or a uh, literary classic has to have some sort of, um, societal value it has to explore some sort of aspect of the human <laughs> what are you two giggling about <laughs> hooligans okay i have to restate that because i laughed the entire way through it um second- <laughs> was it was it was it noah caressing my ear with his tongue? because that's basically what was happening <laughs> Not what happened. I'll, I'd like to state for the record, not what happened. Oh. Humorous, humorous recount. That was hyperbolic in nature. That, that better have been hyperbolic. <laughs> Ever, so everybody no, knows no, there's no. no bromance going on between me and Tyler. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now finish up your points. Secondly, a literary classic has to explore some sort of aspect of the human condition that has also not been explored before and technically not technically generally this goes against what society would expect at the time so literary classic is something that's essentially different different from everything that has been done before and also it has to have some sort of language value that is objectively superior than other books sure would what i'd like to appreciate quickly for the record the irony that is the objective value of literature. But yes, it's fine. everything's subjective. <clears throat> no, wait, you say everything is objective? Subjective. Oh, she said the objective value. I know, no, exactly. I oh, everything's subjective. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, I let us know, right? I think that that's a pretty good wrap-up of The Colonel, yeah. right? I By... think we'll leave you with the thoughts of what is a classic, what constitutes a classic, and also how do these classics show the ambiguity of human existence and also the social structures which we have ourselves now, Paul? I think a common misconception (laughs) is that classics are old. They're old books, old songs, old movies, when in reality they don't have to be. The Colonel's going to explain this, but so is Humans in Motion. Ladies and gentlemen, you're witnessing a classic starting right now. Follow us on Spotify and Apple Music and Apple Podcasts. We're going to be on Apple Podcasts soon, guys. I'm so excited. All right. Thank you for listening. Godspeed to you all.